Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and no Amanda. Amanda's off taking care of kids today with all the stuff that they have with them and a little guy who I think might be teething. He's a little bit crabby. And so she's over there. She gets the fun job of taking care of the crabby baby today. So I guess I'm going to call this my luck to be here. And don't tell her I said that because you know, <laughs> next time she'll just leave me be with a baby who's mad at me. I like them when they're happy. Today we're talking with uh, with Natalie Vecchione, right? Vecchione? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. I'm, I'm going to have to keep working hard to remember that. <laughs> Natalie Vecchione. Natalie has a website you can find her at fasdhope.com. And if you know anything about this world of foster care of kids who've been abused in difficult situations, you've probably at a bare minimum heard the acronym FASD. It's all about fetal alcohol and the difficulties that, are, that struggle with alcohol. And I want to preface this conversation with saying, <clears throat> I'm not saying alcohol is all bad. I'm not saying that if you have a struggle with alcohol, you're all bad. And I'll start with a little bit of a story of my own here. Uh, a few years ago, when our daughter, our oldest daughter, she was 17 and she got real sick. She had a nasty disease called hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. And it's a nasty sounding disease because it is a nasty disease. And as we walked through that with all the kids in our house, with all the struggles we had, with the lack of support that I had, and she fought for nine months before she lost her battle. And then my wife, who was in a terrible, terrible space, right? I mean, as every parent is in those moments in life. And my teenage sons who had just watched their, their sister struggle and then lose a battle, and they were in a terrible, terrible space. And I, I got myself to the place where I had at least, a, you know, one glass of whiskey a day, right? The only real trick here is that that glass was usually a 750 milliliter glass and it was shaped just like a bottle and it was one a day. And it took me a while to get to the point where I realized that that was not serving me. And this past January marks, I think, four years since the last one. So I'm, I'm, happy to have been been to the other side of that and have learned how to to work through that to whatever extent we can in my life but alcohol was a definite struggle for me and so when i see people talk about alcohol i grew up in a very religious environment that talked about alcohol like all those drunks right it was it was this real negative thing and i don't want that to come across in this conversation today alcohol can be something that a lot of people i know use just fine but some of us have struggles and there's a reason why it's been four years and it'll be many, many more before my next drink, probably going to, that next date will probably coincide with the last date on my headstone. If I, if I'm thinking how it's really going to end up, but alcohol can also be very destructive. Hurts a lot of parents, relationships, kids, especially when it becomes an addiction that is not controlled at all. So with that being said, Natalie, how are you doing today? I am happy to be here, Jason. And thank you for sharing your story because 
your story matters. And um, there's this famous quote that I, I love to share by Morgan, I believe it's Morgan Harper Nichols. And it says, um, share your story because it, I'm paraphrasing this. Your story could be the words of somebody else's survival guide. And I really think that by your sharing that you, you are giving words to somebody else's survival guide. And us sharing our story about um, our sons having a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, we hope and pray that it'll be a survival guide for other thousands and thousands, if not millions of parents out there who are, um, who have a child, you know, or a teenager, um, adult that has an FASD. So I'm just thankful to be here and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm glad to have you here. You know, a while back we interviewed a young lady named Heather and, um, I believe the name of that particular episode is abuse in and out of foster care with Heather. I think it's what we named it. Um, I'm pretty certain there's no last name on there. We wanted to keep her, her identity somewhat discreet, but Heather was, uh, was born with an FASD diagnosis and she talked about that and some of her journey that she struggled through, man, this, this gal has been through the ringer, right? And a lot of that can be traced back to that, that exposure to alcohol in utero. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And I think one of, one of the many things I hope to communicate to your audience is that out of all of the drugs, and we know kids in foster care, kids, teens, youth in foster care, um, we know that one of the primary reasons, if not one of the top reasons that they're taken out is because of alcohol and drug use in the home. However, um, and I've spoken with many social workers, I've spoken with many professionals in foster care, um, it is almost it's very rarely that alcohol use is documented. Other drugs, you know, have are documented, but um, not too much alcohol because you know alcohol is a legal drug, and people either assume that the you know the birth mother didn't drink, or they forget to ask. So, um, but with that said, alcohol is actually the most dangerous of all of the drugs that can be exposed to an unborn child because it actually causes permanent brain damage that crosses over to many parts of the brain. And as a result of that too, depending on when the you know, child was exposed in utero, it also affects, there's over 400 comorbid medical diagnoses that go with having an FASD. So not only do you have the brain disability, but you have the whole body disability. So that's one of the um, many things I hope you know I can share with your audience today is that alcohol, out of all of those substances exposed to kids, it is the most dangerous. It is m the most debilitating, and it is lifelong. So, and you're not the first person I've heard say that. I actually had a doctor tell me that once because we have a lot of kids who've been drug exposed in our home, and the one has a list that's like he had a hair follicle done. And he was positive for such a long list of, of drugs that like knocked our socks off. And his answer was, ah, you know, the thing is, so most of your, most of your drugs are just a molecule or two off of a, a FDA approved drug. It's not good. Don't get me wrong, but alcohol is one of those ones that that's just has some significantly bad after effects. Yes. 
Yes, it actually changes the brain structure. It changes how it actually reduces the myelin sheaths on neurons. So that's one example of how the connectivity in the brain is, is functioning. If you think of like someone who has MS, one of the hallmarks of MS is the myelin sheaths are, are reduced. So we know the connectivity is, is reduced and therefore the symptoms. The same thing happens with prenatal alcohol exposure. The alcohol actually reduces the myelin sheath. So that's where that contributes to that poor working memory where some days, and I, I can use our son as an example, some days he was able to retrieve something or to remember something and some days he was not. And that's because literally the wiring is inconsistent and that's a result, one of the many many results of prenatal alcohol exposure. You know, I can only imagine that it probably translates over to the, I've tried the idea of trying to create a computer, but using all bare wires with, with no, no covering. And I'm really glad you bring up that analogy because I think that's a great analogy we can share with your audience. I was speaking with a trauma therapist and she uh, specialized in working with kids in foster care and kids in very hard places. And we talked about FASD and she used that same exact analogy. She said, FASD is the prenatal trauma. So think of it as your computer actually having damage in, you know, the hardware in, in you know, mainframe or whatever. I'm not really a techie, so I apologize. But having that actual main computer damage from the, you know, the alcohol. Think of that as the alcohol exposure. Now, with trauma, think of it as trying to install a program, like say, for example, Zoom, like we're talking on, and, and that's how I, I, you know, I record my podcasts and all of our meetings and whatnot. And say that the Zoom is not working because of that mainframe trauma. So you've got two layers of trauma right there. And, and I'm just talking, you know, the, the trauma of being in foster care. I'm not even talking about the the layers and layers of trauma that happened in between that. So it really is the prenatal trauma and what we think, what the general public thinks as bad behaviors, and I'm using air quotes with that, are actually symptoms from that brain damage and that whole body disability. And then that turns into trauma upon trauma. So if we can educate your audience and educate one of one of the missions of FASD Hope is to provide that awareness about what FASD is and about the impacts it, that it has and how prevalent it is. That that if we can use that analogy that when when that therapist used that analogy with me about prenatal trauma and then lived experience trauma, it really did make sense on how you know, things are not able to be carried out because of that, that mainframe, that, that prenatal trauma. So when your son came to you, did he come with a diagnosis already? No, no. So our son, we, we, here's the interesting um, thing. We adopted our son via domestic adoption. Um, he was about to be placed into foster care. However, we received a call from a private adoption agency, we had already, you know, completed our com training and everything that he was considered a medical di diagnosis. And they were actually looking, you know, um, for parents and, and his birth mother actually chose us. So we did his adoption as 
um, you know, a private domestic adoption. It was a closed adoption. Our son is um, almost 19. So this is, this is, you know, way back when. And no, what we had documented from her and her, we had very sketchy information because um, she had been, you know, um, kicked out of where she was staying and, and, you know, there were a lot of different reports and whatnot. So we knew that he had been exposed to substances. We just didn't know what kind and, and what the hospital was going by um, were, they were saying, you know, possibly pot, def definitely cigarettes, you know, um, possibly some prescription drugs. Um, but he was born, he was, he was born via emergency C-section and um, he, presented with a lot of medical issues at birth. And, and that's actually a common thing with um, kids on the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder on the spectrum. Depending on when um, the alcohol was consumed by, by the bio mom, um, will, you know, will illustrate how physically those um, symptoms are, you know, manifested. And for our son, he, you know, he had low birth weight. He had, um, you know, a small head circumference. He basically had um, what was later diagnosed as fetal alcohol syndrome. However, when we, and I'll tell you the story of how we were first alerted. Um, it's actually really interesting. And it's, it, it's a sad story because it, it just kind of shows how FASD is so misunderstood. Um, but um, in, in the beginning um, with especially infants that have been exposed to alcohol, um, you'll see a lot of things like um, sensory issues, feeding, failure to thrive, um, you know, low, low birth weight, you know, um, slowed growth, um, as well as um, medical issues. So no, we did not have any um, it, it was not documented. Um, in fact, we didn't get an official diagnosis until our son was almost 15. So it, oh, it was wow. a long road. Yeah, it was a long road to diagnosis. How old was he when you adopted him? So he was two and a half weeks old when we brought him home. Um, and he had stayed in the NICU um, up until he was ready to be home. And then he was transferred to the, um, the pediatric unit. And, um, you know, we knew that he had, and, and they told us they were very honest with the medical, you know, conditions, and we were okay with that. And, and that was why we, we were able to, you know, do that versus him going into foster care. Um, so, um, you know, he had a lot of medical issues. We were just excited to be, you know, parents and, and we were young. Um, and um, we basically, how things were back then was, kind of like, oh, here's a symptom. Okay, go see a specialist. So by the time I want to say he was about nine to 10 months old, he probably had like at least six or seven different specialists because he had, you know, and what we now know is how the alcohol impacted him, affected respiratory, affected, you know, cardio, affected pulmonary, affected endocrine, affected GI, affected um, just a number of different things. You know, so, um, yeah, it, it was a journey and, and we didn't hear the words fetal alcohol exposure until he was almost two. Um, and that's what, so what happened, um, with my husband and I were, 
um, just before his second birthday, he started regressing in terms of attachment. He, he did not want to leave my side or my husband's side. He was having sleep issues where he was having night terrors. And night terrors at two years old is a red flag. Um, prior to, to, you know, being a mom, I worked um, as a music therapist um, with a number of populations, including an early intervention. And I knew that that was one of the red flags was, you know, kids do have night terrors, but it usually doesn't happen until they're later and not later in their childhood, but a little older. And he was, this was just before his second birthday. So um, we went to a sleep study clinic which is an oxymoron because when you have a toddler and you're trying to have a sleep study done, nobody gets sleep and you really don't learn much. But uh, we uh, did that. And then the follow-up appointment, um, there was, you know, they did not show anything significant, of course, because he didn't sleep. So they didn't show any, anything. But my husband and I went into the follow-up appointment and this was at a teaching hospital. We were living in Philly at the time. Um, and we were sitting there with our son and our son was on my lap and this doctor came in. He was the, uh, neurologist who was in charge of the sleep clinic of the, of the hospital we went to. And he came in and he took a look at our son and he had a bunch of medical students with him. I believe he also had some interns and whatnot. He looked at our son and he looked at our son's chart and he didn't even look at my husband and I, he looked at the students in the group and said, look at that child. He has mild fetal alcohol effects, which that is an oxymoron because fetal alcohol is not, there's no such thing as mild effects, has different effects for everybody. It's a spectrum disorder. And he just started rattling off a number of characteristics and symptoms. And this was the first time my husband and I actually heard that statement, fetal alcohol. So we were just like deer in headlights. And finally, when he was done talking to the students, my husband and I said, you know, doctor, this is the first time we've heard this, you know, um, what do we do? And he just very, uh, very flippantly said, oh, we'll just put him in early intervention and he'll be fine. He'll, he'll, he'll end up fine, which again, now as a parent advocate, now what I know about FASD is early intervention definitely helps. And it's definitely something that will benefit children that have an FASD. But FASD is a lifelong disability and how the characteristics change as the child develops um, into a teen and a young adult and adult, it doesn't go away. So um, that was, a, again, band-aid for the symptoms, but we weren't addressing the issue, which was actually fetal alcohol um, exposure. We didn't get that answer until I was almost 15. Well, I have to ask, because I've been in a hospital room with a kid and, and got that, that news that kind of knocks you over a bit. What was that moment like for you and your husband when, when the doctor throws that at you? So honestly it really like I bottomed out because, and I'll share something with you. Um, I am the daughter of, um, of, of an alcoholic, um, both my stepfather and my birth father drank. Um, and, um, 
I worked for four years uh, at the VA when I was in grad school. I worked at the VA in Miami with vets who were in PTSD, psych, and substance abuse. Um, I know firsthand what alcohol does to people, what does alcohol does to adults. So I bottomed out thinking, oh my goodness, our son has been exposed to alcohol as a baby. I knew that wasn't good. I knew that just meant, okay, this is, this is not good. So it, it really scared me. And um, I was also scared because I felt like we weren't being taken seriously. You know, we didn't have an official diagnosis he, he, and he never wrote it down. So all we had to go for getting our son's early intervention was, I believe the diagnosis they gave us was, or him was a uh, sensory processing disorder, um, you know, developmental delays, that kind of thing, like a garden variety diagnosis. But yeah, yeah, I bottomed out. I thought I was gonna, I was gonna puke, honestly, <laughs> you know, because no, nobody wants to hear that. Yeah, yeah, and and you said he's he's almost twenty, right? Yeah, uh, he's almost nineteen. He'll be nineteen oh, in July. Okay, so we're, we're talking like early two thousands, <laughs> and I remember what what uh, Google was back then. <laughs> yeah. It was so, doom and gloom. You didn't, you, you couldn't find the good stories. All you found was the bad. Yeah. 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 There wasn't that much information out there for sure. At that point yet, the internet was still pretty young. Yep. Where did you find any support for that at that age? At that age, I really didn't. Honestly, we didn't, it, it was all like sensory. So I was able to find support for sensory because back then early two thousands, autism was like the big buzz disability which it continues to still be. Um, and again, not knocking at anyone, you know, uh, I think that's, it's an amazing community. I've worked with many kids that have autism and just like autism, FASD is a spectrum too. Um, but back then there was hardly anything to go on. So I, you know, the people that my husband and I used were able to find the very few people that were resources we're generally more in the either adoption or sensory types of, of professions. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How did, how did you and your husband process through that? Because I know my wife and I have walked deep waters and that's hard. And then, you know, walking for the last 19 years through something that's that much of a struggle. I mean, man, we're, we still struggle just to, to be able to get a, a date night on once a week. Right. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> I think my husband and I like were we were able to get a date night like oh my goodness like an an official one probably like a year and a half ago it, you know it, yeah yeah back in nineteen eighty something we <laughs> yeah exactly way back when no that that's something that you know Amanda and I have have struggled to to keep as regular as we can as a matter of fact neither one of us drink anymore but we're in this little bitty town right and we have a little bar over here that is dead on a Sunday night. So last night on Sunday night, we went over there and shot a couple games of pool. And I'll tell you, nice. I'm the big pool shark because I won <laughs> three out of four games, but I also laughed because I think the eight ball took like 42 attempts to get into the, into the pocket at the end of the, but you know, it was, it was an opportunity for us to go out and had those moments of connection, which, yeah. you know, with as many kids as we have and the trauma that we have in our house, man, we, we need to get out and just be, be grownups who laugh about something stupid when 
we spend 40 something attempts trying to get an eight ball into the pocket and, and just have those moments. Was that something that you and your husband have had to do to keep your marriage strong over almost 20 years? Well, I have to say, okay. So my husband and I, we, we've been married for 26 years and we've been parents for almost 19 of those years. And we have two children. We also have a daughter who is almost six and she's typically developing. Her adoption story is much, much different than our, our son's. Um, so I have to say, looking back, we should have done a lot more date nights and a lot more self-care as a couple and, and definitely, you know, individually. Um, and, and that's another thing that I definitely recommend to, to whether you're fostering, whether you're an adoptive parent or whether you're parenting a kid from a hard place or, you know, your family has been in a hard place and you're, you're coming out from that. You really got to make sure your marriage is sound. Um, my husband and I had some really rocky times for about 10 years ago. We went on a, a, a marriage retreat, a faith-based marriage retreat, and it, it changed our lives and it changed our marriage. And then when we finally got the diagnosis of our son's diagnosis, um, when he and that was a result of him being hospitalized because he had secondary bipolar disorder, which we know 93% of individuals that have an FASD have a co-occurring mental health disorder. Um, so when we got that diagnosis and when it had a name and when we knew, when we started saying, okay, now we're going to learn about this. Now we're going to get trained about this. Now we're going to learn about this and make accommodations. That's when our quality of life really started improving. And, and that's, it's still a daily struggle. There's still, you know, you're living with a, a chronologically 19 year old who developmentally is much lower. And, you know, um, we moved out to the country three years ago. We live in the middle, we live on a farm access road in North Carolina, but we did so because we wanted our son, um, we're converting one of our detached workshops into a tiny house for him. We want him to have some interdependence, you know, um, and our son is an aspiring, he's a carpentry apprentice. You know, we wanted him to have the opportunities that we knew we couldn't have living in a cute little suburb town. So I can say now, yes, we are taking better care of ourselves. And even though COVID has us, you know, socially isolated because both of our kids have vulnerable medical conditions, my husband and I do a lot of things like, you know, if my son's on the Xbox and our daughter's asleep, we take an hour and just, you know, hang out and have, you know, just do stuff like that. So yes, but I, to, to anybody who's listening to my voice and if you're, you're, you know, whether you're a partner or your, your spouse, take care of your marriage because it, it, this really, really tests it. And if you don't have faith, I, my husband and I are also, you know, we're, we're, we're firm in our faith and we know that our faith you know, our faith in God brought us through this journey too. Um, so, but again, we're not perfect. We're far from it. And, and that's why we wanted to, to start FASD Hope because we realized this mission we had was bigger than North Carolina. It was, we wanted to let as many people, you know, as we could know through our podcast and our website that we're on this journey too, and that we've been through some very hard times, but there's hope. And, and that, um, you know, for us, I would have to say our faith, our sense of humor, you got to have a sense of humor in this ride. It's really huge. And, um, and, and just really changing your mindset of 
you're not parenting a kid that's acting badly. You're parenting a kid that has a brain-based diagnosis. So you have to accommodate the same way you would for a physical disability or any other type of brain-based disability. Yeah, that's a huge thing that it's taken me a long time to really, to really understand and internalize is that if you have a kid with cancer, you get that diagnosis and you sit down and you see it and you see the x-rays and you understand that like this kid's not going to act like a typical kid. They're going to, they're not going to be neurotypical. They're going to, they got more trauma in their life. They got more struggles, but when you don't see it, yes, when it is a brain problem that you can't see, then you still have to realize that's just as real. And we consider FASD to be an, uh, an invisible disability because the facial characteristics that are associated with FAS, which is the more one of the more pronounced version, or I shouldn't say versions, diagnoses of FASD, there are actually about five diagnoses that fall under the FASD umbrella, and FAS being um, actually what our son was diagnosed with, being you know the most impacted. Those facial characteristics that people associate with alcohol exposure. They only happen in the first trimester for about a little under a week in the very beginning of pregnancy. And if you think about somebody who consumes alcohol, it, it can happen, you know, alcohol can be consumed anytime during a pregnancy. And those facial exposure, you know, if, if it's consumed, you know, after that date, then, you know, that child will not have the facial, you know, features. So the, I believe the statistics are about 90% of people that have prenatal alcohol exposure do not have outward facial characteristics. But like you said, it's very difficult when you're parenting and you don't know what's going on. You know, you, 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 in the beginning, people, schools, you know, churches, society thinks your kid's acting badly. No, we just don't see the physical disability because it's in the brain. You know, I had some uh, stepsisters who had a disease in their family called Huntington's disease, and it, it chews up the part of the brain between the, basically between the processor and the muscles. It, that's the best description I've heard of it. And um, so don't, don't go to WebMD and tell me I'm all wrong because <laughs> I'm not going to be real specific here, but I watched it in their lives and, you know, and three of them have passed away from it at this point. And one of the things that, that's interesting about that particular disease is it ends up looking like someone who's drunk. And I've had several, several experiences where I've heard of someone calling the cops because they think she's out drunk with her kids at the McDonald's and I, yeah. it's, it's not alcohol at all. And so people don't see that, that connection. A lot of times they don't know what they're seeing. They make the assumption, like you said, that's just a bad kid and you need to do, be a better parent. It's, it's your fault because you haven't parented your child very well. And how much of that have you seen and how have you handled that when people yeah. react to you that way? It, it was hard. It was hard. I had a lot, a lot of that, a lot of shaming, um, you know, and that's one of the reasons we ended up homeschooling our son started our homeschooling our journey seven years ago because all we kept hearing was what he was not doing and, and the negative and and um you know his his needs were so specialized that they you know they just couldn't fit we he, we tried public schools we tried private schools we tried christian schools we tried um hybrid schools 
And, and in the end, homeschooling worked for us because if I knew his brain was not able to access information on a certain day, we'd just shift gears. Um, and then also we, a, we were able to um, educate him in the best way he learned, which is really hands-on. So to answer that question, um, <laughs> excuse my language, but it just sucked having people say, you know, well, why can't your kids stand, you know, sit still? Or why can't you, you know, it, it, it was because, again, it was that accus accusatory tone, you know, the accusatory tone of, well, your kid is, quote, behaving badly, end quote, versus they have these are symptoms you're seeing, you know, these are primary characteristics of, of, of FA, of having an, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, and yes, it is like being drunk because you have the decrease in inhibitions. Um, I know quite a few kids that are in teens and young adults that have an FASD that have tremors, that have the physical tremors because of the alcohol impact. Um, you know, in people that have liver damage, severe liver damage, you know, it, it's it just imagine, I mean, just imagine like the drunkest you've ever been. And then imagine that happening to an unborn child, you know, so tiny, you know, like it, it just kind of like blows my mind, you know, that um, people don't realize how impactful alcohol is. So yeah, there was a lot of judgment, a lot of shame and everything. But then again, once we received the diagnosis when he was almost 15, and once we learned, okay, this is brain-based, this is a whole body disability, this is what we need to, you know, we, we had him, we had a, a complete neuropsychosocial assessment done, which assessed really the, the main characteristics. There's a lot of primary characteristics, but where we see a lot of um, a lot of gaps in kids and teens that have FASD is that, first of all, their chronological age is much higher than their developmental age, and this is especially pronounced as they get older. So, because they're not able to keep up with the expectations of the school, society, whatever, so that's where we start to see the secondary behaviors, you know, self harm suicidal thoughts, um, acting out, that kind of thing, because it's such a poor fit because the expectations are so high and they're not able to meet them. The other thing, um, so that's called dismaturity, where the maturity is actually not present. One of the other main um, hallmarks of FASD, there's quite a few, um, but they're, um, and, and I'm quoting a wonderful book, one of the first books I read and I'll, I'll give you the, the title so you can share with your, um, your audience. It's called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder, Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders. It's by Diane Malvin. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on a, a lot of different places. Actually, our website has a connection to it. Um, it's really what we call the, the, the book you need to read when you first get a diagnosis, you know, uh, it explains FASD as a brain-based physical disability. And then, so um, the other part of the, the other hallmark uh, of FASD is that their executive functioning skills are affected. And what that means is that you give someone that has an FASD or another brain-based 
you know, condition like, you know, Huntington's or, um, you know, any other kind of brain-based TBI, you give them a direct, you know, directions and they're not able to carry out those directions. Usually if it's more than three steps or even three steps, it, the brain is not able to connect everything in place to, to have those um, directions, you know, so it's carrying out tasks, it's remembering to do things, it's, you know, um, things like um, abstract, abstract thinking, making connections, consequences, associating actions with consequences. So, um, again, I'm not doing this justice, um, trying differently rather than harder. And then you can also, again, visit our website where we have resources that explain really how the alcohol affects the brain, but but those are really some of the main characteristics of FASD are things like dismaturity, executive functioning deficits, poor working memory, poor memory, um, high impulsivity, you know, easily distracted. Those are examples. You know, you're describing more than one of the children in my house. And we, you know, we, we have several kids who are adopted and a lot of them, we don't really have that background, you know, that you, you say that and it makes me go, Hmm, I wonder, I wonder how old they can test for that. Um, actually, so I've learned it's never too late to be tested. There are, I know adults that have an FAS day who were tested. Actually, I interviewed one and, uh, she was in her forties when she officially received a diagnosis and it made sense. Same thing with, with other adults. Um, I, I believe, you know, um, if you suspect prenatal alcohol exposure, or are you starting to see these characteristics? Find a diagnostic clinic or find, you know, and again, we list some, not every, <clears throat> we're constantly updating our website, but um, there are some wonderful diagnostic clinics that do um, diagnose as early as, as, you know, infants, babies. Again, the symptoms look differently as the child um, ages, even into an adult, you know, so the symptoms now we're seeing at 19 in our son, many of them are the same, but some of them are different than the symptoms we saw when he was five. So how's that journey been for him to be as he gets older and finds his way into his life because I mean if we're fortunate in this world we all plan on our kids outliving us so you know you, you put these two words together that you rarely see in the same sentence and one of them is the acronym FASD and the other one is the word hope you don't see those two together very often and yeah. if you're fortunate enough to to not outlive your child what does that look like for you guys in your future well, and that's one thing I pray. I pray that, um, I pray our child, I pray our son outlives us, but that's, um, that's one of the sobering statistics about FASD is the average lifespan of an individual with fetal alcohol exposure is 34 years. Um, and that was one of the motivators that, um, my husband and I prayed about that. We, we needed to have FASD and hope in the same, in the same sentence and the same title, because often we hear FASD, we hear those, we hear the statistics, we hear the incarceration, the drugs and everything like that. Um, 
but there are also stories of hope and there are families like us that that we we pray and we say you know what we we just we're not going to we're realistic but we're going to do everything that we can to to provide hope for our kid um so it's hard it changes you know it really does it changes like I think the biggest change for us um, was moving out here to the country and, and starting to, you know, work on the tiny house because we knew our son would never be completely independent, but we wanted him to have interdependence. Um, we found what we call our tribe, which is finally after we received the diagnosis, you know, um, talking with other parents of kids and young adults that have an FASD. You know, the FASD community is, is very, um, we look out for each other, you know, especially parents and caregivers and loved ones. Um, I just, you know, I don't really think that far down the road. I think about like now and say this year, because honestly, things change year to year. He, he's done with homeschooling. He's working with a wonderful carpentry teacher. Um, he's also taking some part-time computer classes online. We're just working through each year. You know, COVID, of course, you know, we used to do a lot more pre-COVID. We used to go out. He used to be able to see friends. I have to say that this year has been hard because he, he turned 18 last year. And I want to say all of his friends either went off to college or to the military. Um, that are that his friends that you know are local and that he's been in touch with for a long time um you know he does have a couple of friends that do have an fast they don't live nearby though um they he's in a virtual support group um but he there's been a lot of mourning this year for him because his friends have gone off and they've kind of you know either college or military and he, I know that it breaks me like as a mom that he wants to do that so badly and he can't. So it's about like sh changing the dreams, changing the goals and saying, okay, what's going to fit for you? What's going to work for you? Um, so it, it really is, again, it's a day-to-day -day thing. Um, I just, my husband and I have hope and um, we have faith and my husband, a couple of years ago, after the diagnosis, we really embraced, um, and this is on our website, um, we just savor the moments. You know, it, this, this journey is really hard and there are some very difficult times, you know, like having your, your child hospitalized for bipolar disorder. That's something nobody wants, you know, or, or finding out that your kid has this disorder where the lifespan is life expectancy, excuse me, is 34. But at the same time, there are some really beautiful moments and victories. And I'm sure you know, Jason, that we get to celebrate that other people just kind of take for granted, you know? So if I hope that wise. answers your question. <laughs> if we're wise, we celebrate those moments, right? Yeah, yeah. Or if we remember to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned it a couple of times. Um, how has your faith played into this? Uh, I, I don't think I, well, I, it's not, I don't think, I know I couldn't do this without my faith. You know, um, having a child that has an FASD has transformed my life because I realized that I'm not in control. And for so long, especially like with my journey, 
you know, as growing up as a, as, as a adult child of an alcoholic. And, you know, I also had endometriosis very badly and had to get a hysterectomy when I was 28. So I've had a lot of, you know, kind of battles of my own. And, um, I learned really, um, especially, you know, 10 years ago when my husband and I went to that marriage retreat, I learned that, okay, you know what, I have to let all this go. And that's when I really, I became born again. You know, um, I gave my life to Jesus and I realized that, um, this was all happening for his purpose for, to show that our son is a miracle and that our journey is a miracle, you know, and then, you know, um, our daughter came into our, our picture six years ago. And again, I, I've shared, she's typically developing very different birth story. We actually, her birth mother, uh, was one of my flute students when I taught flute in Philly. And she was also one of my son's babysitters. So it was a, it's, it's still a very open adoption. And, um, and our kids are almost 13 years apart, which is really a wild ride. <laughs> but um, I have to say that she is another example of, of how God um, just gives us miracles that we need to stop and, and, and thank him. So it's strengthened my faith. And I have a, a I have a good friend that says that um, I don't know how people who don't have faith do this because it's like, honestly, you're, you're not in control and, and to, to be able to say, okay, God, I know you have this. And there's many days where, um, I've just cried myself to sleep, just not even knowing what to pray. And I know that, you know, tomorrow would be a, a different day. So yeah, my faith is very, it's, it's prominent. And that's where that's kind of the third prong of our mission. Um, in FASD Hope, you know, in both our podcasts and on our website, we want to pr provide awareness about FASD. We want to provide resources, you know, in the terms of, you know, kind of like pointing people in the direction. We're not professionals. We do not say we are by any means. We're just parents with lived experience. Um, and then the final prong, which I think is the most important prong, is to give people faith and inspiration and hope that um, they, they can do this journey and they're not alone. Yeah. Isn't that what we all need? Some Absolutely. faith, inspiration and hope. Absolutely. Because my goodness, it sounds like you guys have been on quite a wild ride for a lot of years, trying to, trying to understand how to best navigate these waters, because I don't know that there's, there's a playbook to be quote unquote successful. You know, and, and again, um, success looks different for people. So it just as FASD is a spectrum disorder, meaning it's going to look different for the people affected. Um, I, I like to joke that I think success is a spectrum as well. You know, for us having our son, you know, working part time, doing what he likes to do, living in our tiny house on our property. That's success. And that may look different in his, hopefully in his mid to late twenties or early thirties, that success may look different, but right now that's what it looks like for us, you know? And, um, that's, that's fine. That's fine. And then there's, you know, you go through, it's like that you hear the, the Kubler-Ross cycle, you know, cycles of grief, you know, you get to that acceptance and, 
and it's you still go through them you know things will trigger off that 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 grief response again but when you get to that acceptance um you just you're thankful that you're there yeah acceptance right that's that's one of those ones that i think for a lot of us if you don't have the faith you're not going to get there very easily and absolutely. if you do, you might not still be intact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me tell you, my hair was not this gray 20 years ago. <laughs> you know. No. My, but mine's yeah. not just getting gray, it's trying to run away at the same time. <laughs> you will soon see me all my pictures online. You'll start to see me with a bald head, I think. <laughs> Don't tell Amanda I said that. She's not here, right. here but she's told me I'm not doing that yet. But <laughs> Yeah, there's a good possibility because I mean, yeah, a lot of struggles. It's a lot of struggles. You know, we we've dealt with a lot of kids with a lot of those those different needs than than what your neurotypically developing child have. Yeah. You know, through whatever through drug exposure, through through traumas, through all those things. And man, it's it's hard. It's hard to walk through. And and faith has not been a, a real deep component of our life. It never has been. You know, I, I was raised up in a in a religious organization that, that I really feel was, was more damaging, I think, than it was helpful. Um, I, I still consider it to be a bit of a, of a cult type religion. Although don't tell my mom, I said that she gets mad every time I say it, mostly because she's still part of that religion, which is fine for her, but, but it caused me a lot of struggles. And I walked away from that at a very young age and never really figured that out very well after that. That's been one of my big struggles going going forward is understanding what that means for for me in my life and my wife was raised in a, in a very troubled home she was never in foster care although she should have been and she never had any exposure to that at her age and so for us that's that finding that hope through those moments of of struggle and trauma and not having that solid faith behind us has been has been a troubling point for us and I think you bring up a really good point, Jason, is for me, I also grew up in a religion where I consider, um, you know, to be um, a religion. And for us and my husband and I, when we learned faith is not religion and faith is relationship and that looks different for everybody. You know, I think um, if you're not at that point of, you know, you're still just you're still exploring your faith or you're still, you know, discovering your faith. I think for me, um, and somebody said this best is, is be with people, have your tribe be people who bring you up and who can show you how to bring you up. Um, you know, I think way back when, you know, 19, 20 years ago, um, you know, as we were starting this journey, I think the people who planted the seeds of faith were those people that I, now I look back in our journey, who the ones who were bringing us up, you know, and, and, and for me personally, faith is not religion, not at all. hundred percent, not faith is relationship. Faith is having that trust and that hope. And again, it looks different for everybody. So, you know, when we share our faith, we know that, you know, we, there are people who have different, you know, journeys and, and we completely understand that. And, and that, you know, that's, that's your journey, you know, that's, we're just kind of sharing our journey. Um, but we've actually, I mean, you know, we've been to churches where 
you know, they've actually said, you know, um, and you have your son go out, he's, he's being too loud. He's being too whatever. So for us, um, you know, we've actually kind of learned that faith is about our relationship with God and, and our relationship with Jesus and about how it looks different for us than it would for, you know, somebody who, <laughs> somebody who, who's in a religion who, you know, it, it's, it's much different. So, um, and I think COVID too has definitely kind of had us all take a look at that too. You know, I think COVID-19, we, you know, really for us, it's been hard, but we moved out to the country three years ago. We go into town once or twice a week to get our groceries curbside. You know, we really don't do much differently except for you know, seeing our friends, you know, inside, you know, without masks, you know, we, we pretty much life out here, you know, on a, you know, a small little farm is, doesn't change. Um, but um, what I think another thing that gives me hope is hearing stories of other families that, um, that are ahead of us on this road that can say, it's okay. You're going to get through this. That to me, and there are families out there, and and we try to highlight those families in our podcast, you know, and and share their journeys because those trailblazers. Again, 20 years ago, FASD people, it, it, you Googled it, and you know, you had the worst case scenario. Now, if you Google, and this is actually only been recently, if you Google FASD, it's actually the CDC definition of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is the whole, you know, talks about the spectrum and, and the brain, you know, based disability and, and the medical. And it, it's amazing. I mean, you know, just in a couple of years, how, you know, when you Google FASD, it would be fetal alcohol syndrome, which is one diagnosis. Now you Google FASD and it's much different. So I have that, that to me is hopeful right there, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, slowly, but surely we're getting more people to recognize FASD is what it is. And the other thing too, is that FASD is so much more prevalent than many other brain-based diagnoses. A recent 2018 study, and I, I cite this study a lot, which was published in the, the DAMA in the journal of, you know, American Medical Association. Um, 2018, Philip May, PhD out of UNC Chapel Hill, found, and this was a, you know, a cross-sectional study, one in 20 first graders have an FASD. And that's general population. That's not foster care. We know that foster care, 80% of kids and teens and youth in foster care have been exposed to alcohol prenatally. And why is that not being talked about more? So this is why I'm excited that, you know, I, I, I'm part of a, a group of people that were working to get national legislation happening because this, this is a health crisis epidemic within this pandemic. And it, it just needs to be addressed because also another thing, you know, talking about drinking as a result of COVID, 41% of women have reported increased binge drinking since the onset of COVID a year ago. 
Well, I believe that. I have a friend of mine who's a, um, he works for a, a distributor for a national alcohol chain, and he talks about the increased amount of business that they've seen. Yep. It's huge. It's huge. Now, before we start this, you'd mentioned um, some legislation going forward. So, um, and a great, I wish every state could start the legislation that Minnesota, Minnesota has kind of been a pioneer in state legislation and state um, FASD action. So it took a long time for this legislation to get passed, but it finally was passed in August of 2020. Minnesota has a two-pronged legislation for FASD and foster care, which I think as a parent advocate, every single state should have this. The first aspect of this legislation is that every single parent, caregiver, um, foster care, anyone involved in the foster care system is required to have one hour of training about FASD. I know that's only an hour, but that's a start. So everybody associated, birth parents, foster parents, everything. So then when that child is placed, okay, they are aware, you know, whoever is caring for this child or following this child, youth, young adult is aware of FASD and what it actually is. So that's the first prong. The second prong, I think, makes me as an advocate even more excited because this is the important, they're both important, but this I think is especially important. The second prong requires every single infant, adult, or, or not adult, but infant, teen, you know, child in foster care, every single youth in foster care will be screened for an FASD. That to me is mind blowing because we know how many of those kids do not have an official diagnosis. They're suspected and there's written, oh yeah, use drugs or whatever. Okay, this means that they have to get a diagnosis, an official diagnosis for an FASD. And having that is a game changer because then you can, you know, if they're in school, then you have, a, a, you have things made on their IEP. You know, if there's physical things, then they can tie it back to exposure. That says a lot. And then they realize that these kids are not, quote, acting badly, end quote, but that these are symptoms of their FASD. So that legislation that was, that, that's been in effect since um, August 2020 in Minnesota, I would love to see that. I, whoever is listening, if you know somebody who is a legislator in your state, challenge them to, to try to get that legislation going. And if you want more information about that, inf that, about that legislation, you can, um, you can go on to proofalliance.org. Um, they're the Minnesota um, branch of the National Organization for Fetal Alcohol. So um, we are trying, there's, there's a group of many of us, I'm a parent advocate. Again, I'm not an expert, just parent. Um, but we're trying to get that national legislation going. And in that national legislation that, that we're trying to get funding for um, things like 
diagnose, you know, increase funding for research, increase funding for awareness, increase funding for diagnose, you know, diagnosing, um, building FASD state systems, um, transitional services for adults. I mean, it's this legislation is amazing, amazing, and it's much needed. So I'm excited to be a small part of that and and to see that take momentum and hopefully that well, you know, that'll get passed because I think when the nation as a whole sees FASD for what it is as a brain-based diagnosis that affects the whole body and that it changes, then we can accommodate and we can also focus on that individual's strength. And rather than trying to make them fit somewhere saying, okay, where is their best fit? work from there absolutely absolutely um now i as as a guy who's trying to help kids one of the things i do very actively is stay away from politics um because i'm not here to tell you why trump is good or bad or biden is good or bad that is not my bag but i will say that one of the interesting things we have is is a new vice president who got her start in the child welfare system and that may well be a place where we can see, start to see some sort of movement in that. I That could be an amazing thing. That could be an amazing thing. I mean, and we actually, in, in this legislation that going forward, there's bipartisan, you know, involvement, you know, we're, we're talking to senators and legislators on both parties. So this is definitely something that again, I, I like you, I don't like politics either. I don't like talking about politics either. You know, I just, but, you know, thinking about these kids that have been, you know, FASD is the most misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed and undiagnosed of all the developmental disabilities. It's actually the most common developmental disability in the Western world. And the prevalence in foster care is 80%. So that right there, I hope and pray somebody hears that. And, and you know, it, it would be amazing if the vice president could take action on that and, and use her experience from child welfare to say, okay, this need, we need change on this. You know, it, it, it would be amazing. Again, what we're doing, what my husband and I are doing, we consider this to be a ministry. We, we're not doing this for money. We don't, we don't get any money from our podcast or anything. We're doing this because we want the world to know that this is happening and this is important. And that, you know, what you're seeing, if you have a child, a teen and adult exposed to alcohol, you are seeing symptoms. You're not seeing you know, it's not that they won't do something, it's they can't do something. And when you change that mindset, it's like the way I tell people, it's like the movie, The Matrix, where you either take the red pill or the blue pill. And I'm dating myself. I know I am. But, you know, sorry <laughs> for all you out there. This is, you know, sorry for all you who think Keanu Reeves was John Wick and not Neo. But, um, you know, <laughs> it's, but seriously, when you learn about, the brain and how it is affected by alcohol, it change, it's, it's a game changer. It really is. And it changes the way you parent because you're parenting from a disability standpoint of making accommodations and focusing on strength. 
versus a punitive standpoint of, well, why did you forget your coat or why can't you do that? Absolutely. Uh, it, it was one of the things that I had to learn that sometimes I'm parenting symptoms, not a child, right? When I see something, sometimes I have to decide, when am I seeing symptoms here? Yeah. And when am I seeing a child? Yeah. Because I, I don't care FSD or not, every kid's going to be a dummy and do stupid things. They're going to be ignorant from time to time. They're going to do be rebellious from time to time. They're going to do things that make you like want to bang your head on the wall because I don't mm -hmm. understand. That's kids. Yeah. But some of the stuff that we see is is a symptom of something they cannot control. And that's a whole different animal than trying to see that as a child who chooses to disobey, who chooses to defy you, who chooses poor behaviors. And for as a parent, I would want to know that. I would want to know that. That to me, again, I and that's why we didn't we didn't stop. You know, I, I read a book and I read another book and I and my husband agreed. And we were like, okay. And finally, finally, after 15 years, somebody said, yes, a hundred percent. This is what it is. And when we were able to get training, because there, there are actually now since COVID, you can do the training online to learn about brain-based parenting, to learn about the neurobehavioral approach to parenting. You can do, and, and I can, I'll share with you the resources so you can, you know, share with your listeners, but you can do all this online now, you know, before we had to go to a three-day workshop and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but because of COVID now, the accessibility to training is much better. So that gives me hope too, that more people can say, okay, you know what, I want to get trained in this to learn more about this, you know, that accessibility has increased. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. That's, that's one of the beautiful things about life is sometimes you have this horrible, nasty disease that comes along and causes a whole world to react in ways that sometimes are, are helpful, and sometimes are reactionary, and sometimes don't seem to make any sense. And out of the middle of all that, we can still have something good happen. Silver linings. Exactly. Exactly. And the ability to, to reach those, those trainings, that knowledge and that experience through the internet brings a lot of access because I, I yeah. don't, I'm sorry, I don't have a whole lot of opportunities to take three days off of work nope. so that I can jo go join a, a workshop. As it turns out, my, my financial plan has failed greatly. None of the lottery tickets I bought have been <laughs> winners yet. <laughs> So I have to go to work tomorrow morning at two o'clock in the morning. My alarm's going to go off and I'm going to have to get up and go to work. And I can't just, just not go to work in order to get to those trainings. Yep, yep. But the fact that they're all available online is amazing. And at different times and different hours too. That's the other great thing too. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Natalie, I want to just, just tell you number one, thank you for being somebody who was a parent who wouldn't give up, who went out and searched for information, who did her best, you and your husband doing your best to find an answer that will help you raise a successful young man in whatever way that looks like in your world. And number two, for just coming in here and sharing your story, because these are hard stories to tell people sometimes. Yeah. It took, me a, it took me a long time to be comfortable telling people about my own journey through some of my struggles, my journey yeah. through alcohol. You know, like I said, I grew up in a, in a place where, where all those drunks were the bad people in the world. 
and to tell that story was, was a horrible thing to have to tell people. But you know what I found is, is when I share those stories and when I share the stories about my weakest moments, it gives a playbook for somebody else who is in their weakest moment. Exactly. Exactly. I thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for, for giving me this opportunity because I know that this pod reaches people that need to hear about FASD. So, and, and again, my husband and I, um, another, you know, silver lining of COVID is that, you know, we have this podcast and the, you know, my husband made this, you know, website, um, so that people can reach us. And if, again, we, we don't see ourselves as the experts. We just see ourselves as like that post in the middle of the country road that has all the arrows that say, okay, if you want clinics go this way, if you want, you know, parent organizations go this way. So thank you. I, I just appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Well, I appreciate you showing up. And, you know, I just actually got off an interview with, with um, Galen Elmore, who, who talks about going from that, that place of feeling like a victim to becoming a victor and then not stopping there, but learning to become the vessel through which other people can be supported. Oh, I love that. I love that. I have to I, write that. Yeah, I, I, I have to steal it now because I like it. So <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what, what we all need to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I say that I'm just the vessel. I'm just, I'm just the lady with the microphone and, uh, you know, just, just sharing, you know, I am, I cannot see being on this journey and learning what I've learned and saying, okay, you have this information. No, I, it needs to be shared. People need to know about it. So. And we thank, thank you for it. Thank you. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Natalie's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player, or you can find it at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah.